Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I'm not coming out and saying that it's ET material or anything like that. I don't know. All I know is that these very credentialed people have used the best equipment they, you know, in the world to look at these things. And it's a conundrum to them. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. The truth is in here. <laughs> you may have been following, I, I hope you're following, the New York Times' recent UFO reporting. These videos that the Navy confirms are real of pilots seeing and marveling over craft they can't explain. These programs that former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid confirmed were real, in which the military was trying to investigate what was being seen and, and physically what was being found. It's weird. It is weird. And I've been wanting to explore this on the show because I believe that there's a high probability that the length and frequency and consistency of reports of events like these, it points towards something, something important, be it in the human brain or in the world we inhabit, even as I think there's a pretty low probability that we really know what the actual explanation or explanations are. And so I wanted to have a conversation about this that could sit in that uncertainty, that could be humble rather than conspiratorial. Because conspiratorial, just like reflexively skeptical, those are both ways of grasping for a certainty that I don't think we have gained yet, that I don't think we deserve yet. And I want to have a conversation here that whatever you believe about UFOs, it could illuminate something about our world just as it normally exists, which is why I wanted to have Diana Walsh Pasulka on the show. She is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, a chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion there. And she wrote this amazing book a couple of years back called American Cosmic, UFOs, Technology and Religion. And, and in it, she embeds in the world of UFO research, and she tries to understand it as a form of religious belief. And as a scholar of religion, somebody trained to do that, somebody who came to this from that direction, that means not asking if it's true or false. It means asking what it means, how it operates, what it does to society, what it builds upon that is already there in society. And the results of that book are revelatory, and I think they help us either interpret or possibly to not interpret some of what is being reported and seen now, both in terms of the theory she ends up with here, but also in terms of the things she sees and learns. It all acts for her, she says, as an epistemic shock to what she thought she knew about the world. And, and I hope it does that for the rest of us too. Something you'll notice on not just this episode, but on this show is I take a delight in things that cannot be explained. I, it's weird for an explainer journalist, I know, but I love the idea that the world is bigger and stranger than we can imagine, that we look at reality through a pinhole. I think too many people push the unknown away because it feels good to feel like we're certain, like we've closed the loop. And one way society does that is we use mockery and social pressure 
to push those ideas away, to give ourselves an illusion of certainty, to make certain things disreputable, to even think about and explore. And if, if that's how you operate or you're used to that and you can't believe I'm doing an episode on UFOs, maybe keep an open mind. I, I'm not telling you there are aliens coming to Earth. I don't think I believe that, actually. But I think it's good. It is healthy and it's pleasurable to train our attention sometimes on what we don't know, what we can't explain, not just what we can. My email is always EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Diana Walsh-Pisulka. Diana Walsh-Pisulka, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Let me start where a lot of us are right now, which is what did you think when you began to see these Navy recordings of unidentified flying objects get released? The first time this was released was in, it was, I think it was in December 2017. These were out for a while, Ezra. So that's one thing I think the public needs to know is that these videos have been out for a while. It's just that it's at this point that the Navy and the military came out and said that, yes, these videos are in fact videos that were taken and yes, this did happen. So that's the big deal. That was the big deal about the, uh, the, the coming out of it. Now, when it came out, I was fascinated by what was being perceived first by the public. Um, secondly, I also noticed that a lot, there were a lot of quasi debunkers in various um, publications that are well known. I won't call them out, but they were debunkers by people who actually didn't have the credentials to debunk. So I thought, well, this is a really interesting play out in the media of something that isn't confirmed to be extraterrestrial, but now it's on everyone's radar. So I was um, I was fascinated. I got a lot of phone calls from people, from academics of mine who used to scoff at my research, uh, people from Harvard who wanted to create now a center for research and, you know, of this kind of thing. And I, you know, and basically my, uh, my phone, my email, everything text blew up and it was, uh, it was an exciting time. So, man, there, there are a lot of directions I want to go in this conversation. Um, and, and I should say, I think for, for listeners, there's going to be a meta level to this about what kind of conversation and what kind of research and, and, and what are the modes of understanding around this issue. And then a, a kind of direct level about like, what, what are we looking at and aren't we? But why don't we go a bit into your research? So you were doing research into the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. You're a religious scholar, and I have actually a lot of questions yeah. about purgatory, but I'm going to hold them back for the moment. <laughs> um, how did researching purgatory lead you to an interest in belief in UFOs? Yes, that's the that's the best question right there. So how you know how did this happen? Um, I was as surprised as anyone would be uh, because I was actually for pretty much all of my life an atheist with respect to anything that had to do with UFOs, uh, UAPs, uh, extraterrestrials. So I just you know what is a UAP? So a UAP is the kind of new word that. Um, the military is using to get away from this idea of UFOs because UFOs directly relate to extraterrestrials in the minds of most people. And they want to get to unidentified aerial phenomena because now we have everything in the sky. We have drones, you know, we have all kinds of things. So a UAP is probably a better term for the UFO because the UFO is my professors would call it multi-determined. It's like this, this term that connotes extraterrestrials. That's why we use UAP, but I use both of them simultaneously because to let people know what I'm doing. So how did I get from Catholic history, which I've been studying my whole life, to 
this, the study of UFOs. And um, okay, so this is how it happened. I was finishing a book. I, you know, I'm a professor, so I need to get tenure. And uh, that means you publish a book or, you know, the equivalent of a book, and it has to be in a decent press. Well, I've been working with Oxford University Press, which is in my field, it's it's the best press, uh, very prestigious. It's the oldest press in the Western world. And so I was working on this Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which is this in-between place for Catholics um, and other people believe in it too you know, like the Orthodox Christians. Um, it's this place for the soul when it dies. It doesn't, it's not good enough to get into heaven, but it's not bad. It's not going to hell, basically. So it, so it had, there's a place called purgatory that it resides for an undetermined amount of time before it gets to heaven. And so um, I actually found it was a place before it became a doctrine in the Catholic tradition. And in fact, it was in Ireland. So I thought this was really interesting. So I had to go way back into the into the Catholic record, and they keep great records. So it was I wouldn't say it was easy, but it wasn't super hard. So I went back and I looked through archives, which are libraries of old documents. You have to you know wear certain gloves to look through them and things like that. And I had people help me translate different languages to come up with a record of this this place called Purgatory. And it went from about 1100 to about 1800. And that was the book. And I, I published it. Now, after I published it, I had been set on doing this other book on this really interesting bishop, the first bishop here in the United States, who actually was in the Carolinas. So I had a lot of access to resources about him. John England was his name, and he was Irish. And so he had been sent here, by the way, by the English, because he was a, a rabble rouser, you know, in, uh, in Ireland, which in my, in my opinion means he was a good guy. So he got sent here and, um, I, that was my next book, but I had a lot of these very strange, um, I would say about, well, many, many pages, like about 10 pages of the records from my former research on purgatory about discs in the sky, flying things, basically what I really couldn't understand, but the patterns were so similar that I kept them as a group and I put them in a file. And one day I was having um, coffee with a colleague and I took out, you know, this and I said, what do you think of this? And so he read through it and, and he said, this reminds me of Steven Spielberg, you know, UFO ET stuff. And of course, the first thing I think is, he's gone crazy, you know? And so um, I laughed and we just laughed it off. And that week there was a UFO conference, a conference about, it was basically a conference for people who have seen UFOs, felt that they were in contact with inhabitants and things like that. So I decided to go to that because it was close and I went. And what I basically heard from those people, and by the way, they are called experiencers. What I heard from them was so similar in patterns to what I had been reading about that I kind of changed my direction. It took me a good month to do so uh, because I thought it was just too weird to do. But then I got tenure and I thought, you know what? I can write about this. So um, I was also interested in material culture and how material culture impacts beliefs, right? So the former book I did basically made the case successfully, that the idea of purgatory derived from these caves that, you know, were around Europe, mostly in Ireland. And people would go into these caves and they would, you know, if they lived through the 24 hours they were in the caves, they were underground, um, they would be clean of sin. And I grew up in um, 
the Bay Area during the dot-com era, you know, I went to grad school. And so I was very interested in technology and how the digital infrastructure could change religion, which it has. And so I'd already been aware of, you know, certain religions like those based on Star Wars called Jediism and things like that. So I thought, wow, this would be very interesting, interesting look at a new form of religion, basically is what we're talking about, a new form of religion that comes directly out of what people interpret to be these things they see in the sky and these experiences they may or may not have with inhabitants of these things. And as a person in religious studies, we never weigh in, well, sometimes we do, but mostly we never weigh in on the truth, you know, because heck, we could, you know, believe, think about it. People once believed that the world was flat, but it's not. So belief can be wrong. But what we do is we look at effects, like social effects. So even if Jesus walked on water, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, but there is an effect of that belief. And so that's what we look at. We look at societal effects and changes and things like that. So I wanted to access the UFO world through um, this type of framework through how this new material culture of the computer screen, the phone and everything like that and media. Um, I was also a consultant on The Conjuring and I got to see how, you know, people edit uh, using cognitive science, actually, people edit things in order to create a, a very real experience for the viewer. So I was fascinated by this type of thing too. And I know that's a lot to say, but that's really how I segued into studying UFOs from Catholic culture. So Anisha is going to ask this next question as a as a point of personal indulgence, but I actually think it's going to, to relate importantly. So purgatory, in your research, you found it was initially understood to be a physical place somewhat hilariously in Ireland, and it later <laughs> yes. turns into a conceptual idea? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Why, why did they think it was a place? What, what did they see in a place that made them believe there was a purgatory? So we know about the pilgrimage. In, in religious traditions, there are pilgrimages. This is something that you find in a lot of religious traditions. You even see it in the UFO community. You know, people go to Roswell. They have a big conference there. They have, you know, this festival that lasts for a while. And, you know, you see it Lourdes, you know, and people go there to get the water. People go to the Vatican. It's a pilgrimage. Uh, there's Mecca, right? All right. So places are very important to people, religious practitioners. So what I found back in the Middle Ages, okay, is that purgatory, uh, there were various caves, and they were thought to be caves of purgatory. And people would go into these caves, and you had to get a letter from your bishop. You had to be a pretty bad person in order to go to these caves, by the way. And so you had to get a letter from your bishop or your local parish priest to say, this, this person is pretty bad. You know, they killed their neighbor or something, and they really need to go into purgatory and get cleansed. And so St. Patrick's Purgatory was, I would call it a bestseller of the Middle Ages. It was, this, it was about a knight who was a very bad guy. And he went into this purgatory in Ireland, and it's famous. It's still there, by the way. It's called Loch Derg. And you can Google it and check it out. And people still go there. And they still go through a penance of 24 hours of not eating or drinking. They don't go into a cave, though. So they've um, they filled in the caves. But there's a place, and it's on this lake, Loch. And so there was one in Italy, okay? And so they were, there were various of these throughout 
well, not many, but they were throughout Europe and they were known. And people would go into these places and they would experience things that they thought were spiritual. You know, we in our, we have to understand that mindset. That mindset didn't distinguish between spiritual and, you know, we kind of have this matter-spirit idea, like, oh, that's like thoughts are, are not matter, right? Something like that. They didn't have that. So these things were real to them. So when they came out, this knight wrote a book and it's called, well, he had a monk write it and it's called St. Patrick's Purgatory. And believe it or not, if um, today Dante would be accused of plagiarism because um, he actually took that book and incorporated it into the Purgatorio in his uh, Divine Comedy. One of the things that seems embedded in that to me, to your point about people not having the distinction between matter and spirit, between people seeing things and more easily understanding one is both or, 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 or permeable into the other, is that, and this is a very big part of your book on, on UFOs, is that what we expect to see has a lot to do with what we end up seeing. Yes. And what we, like the frameworks we have for interpreting something has a lot to do with what we end up believing. I mean, I read a a while ago, this great book by James Kugel um, called The Great Shift, I think it was, that's all about um, how unsurprised people were in biblical periods to simply hear the voice of God. Yes. And how much a, a different understanding of what should you do and what should you think when you hear voices dominated. Today, a lot of people report hearing voices, but they're told to understand them as a kind of psychosis or, you know, just a rumination in your head. And depending on how you interpret things, what you see in the world is very, very different. Yes. And can you talk a bit about how you saw that as relating to UFOs? Because a lot of your book is about how we might be seeing the same phenomenon over time, but different structures of belief are helping, are leading us to interpret it in different ways. Absolutely. Okay. So this is a great question. And um, there is actually, I would like to recommend the work of Tanya Lerman. She's an anthropologist at Stanford. And she's written um, books. uh, Her really well-known book is called When God Talks Back. And it's basically what she does is she identifies different types of what you would call mental frameworks. It sounds very similar to uh, the book you just told me about. And she says that our mental frameworks in many ways determine what we see and how we experience it. And she's even worked with schizophrenic populations and, you know, in uh, lots and lots of religious communities. She's worked with Wiccan communities who see their gods and goddesses. And then she went to fundamentalist Christian communities. And it's hard to say what we do when we do ethnography. We hang out with communities. So she hung out with these um, fundamentalist Christian Christians and they would talk to God, right? Sometimes they would have they would put uh, some coffee where God would sit down next to them and they would have their coffee and they would have a conversation with God. They were having a conversation with God, okay? And so that's something that I couldn't do. I wish I could. Okay, so my my mental frameworks are probably too far trained in a certain way to accept that. But there are communities of people all over the world, uh, different you know cultures that have frameworks that allow them to understand things in certain ways. So what I did, I took, I, my work was a little, I worked with Tanya actually, and um, my work was a little bit different than hers in the sense that, well, actually it was a lot different than hers. It had the same idea, but it basically, because of my work 
what I call embedded research with Hollywood people. People, you know, I do do a lot of consulting for movies. And the reason I do that is because it doesn't pay well. But the reason I do that is because what I learned is the kinds of techniques that they're using in order to bypass rash or like rational frontal lobe. I forgot exactly what it's called, the executive function of the brain back into a part of the brain where it doesn't matter. So that, you know, there's this classic experiment that philosophers will do and they'll say, don't think of a lemon and don't think about what a lemon will do to your mouth. And then, you know, you get this saliva in your mouth, right? And you're like, well, how did that happen? So your, your, your rational brain, you, what you see is actually going back and you're believing it on some level, even though your rational mind says this can't be according to my definition of what is possible. This can't be, but on one level it is. And so that is what I was trying to show here was that, oh, here's a recent example. So we, we just had the latest um, New York Times expose, right, by Leslie and, and Blumenthal. Um, and a lot of people I noticed, I, you know, like go over different social media groups and demographics and stuff like that, were believing that this was, oh, they're finally disclosing that UFOs exist. Well, no, they're not disclosing UFOs exist at all. They're just saying, we just don't know what these things are. That's all they're saying. But these videos are real. <laughs> so I think that's all we can say, at least from my framework, right? But what? how are these people believing that this is, why do we have such different and diverse interpretations? So that's the question. Well, this is my answer. And my answer is that every single person alive has been inundated with some cultural mainstream intergalactic media phenomena like star wars right so all like my kids know star wars i know star wars you know this is a this and, and it's it's a ethical way of being you know you're either a bad guy or a good guy it's kind of a religion and in fact it is a religion it's called jediism there is a religion of star wars so but a lot of people kind of use it as you know we include it in our language you know try you know we use yoda uh yoda appears to be like um <laughs> he he appears to be this wise uh monk basically and he is a wise monk right he's a jedi monk master and so we've been trained through media and um I, i'd like to throw out another book by jeffrey zacks who who also trained at stanford and um, I don't know where he is now, but um, what he does is his book is called Your Mind on Film. And basically what he's saying is that your mind when you're being, and by the way, the people who do films are using a lot of cognitive science in order to edit their, their films so that when you go in to see a film, you're having the most amazing temporal experience, physiological experience that you come out of that movie and even though you say, oh, that wasn't real, you know, on some level, it's real to you, right? So I guess that's how I'd answer your question. Let me pull back into not Star Wars, but but something that sparks for me from your book that I thought was super interesting. And and I'm, I promise people, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but this is all uh, a framework that is going to make sense and I think is, is a really helpful framework to carry in the world. You have a super interesting discussion of the way certain beliefs cloak themselves in a kind of absurdity. And that absurdity makes it so that sort of elites and power centers don't take the beliefs very seriously. 
and so don't exactly fight them. But the beliefs can nevertheless become pervasive. They can become everywhere because they're treated as a joke, but on a, a subconscious level, they then begin to structure what people are willing to believe, what patterns they see in the world. And you talk about this happening with Christianity and in particular some dimensions of communion during Roman eras and then UFOs in this era. And, and, and so can you talk a bit about that idea that the beliefs can be everywhere and not believed and yet believed because it is everywhere? Yes, yes, yes. This was, I think this was like probably my main point that was really hard to convey, but I did it in so many different ways, you know. So, okay, so I use Christianity as an example because I know that religion well. So in the early period of Christianity, the Romans thought Christians were ridiculous, not just the Romans. Everybody thought the Christians were ridiculous because they believed that they were they were cannibals. They were eating their God, right? And so this was, you know, something that nobody took seriously, okay? So Christianity was, a, I would call it like a subterranean belief that um, appealed to a lot of people who were disenfranchised, like slaves, women, you know, and these were the main converts, by the way, in early Christianity, the first, second, third centuries. And then boom, it becomes a state religion. Well, how does that happen? And so what we have to do, and a lot of, there have been many, many books to try to explain how this happened, but I'm most convinced by the books that suggest that it was because it was subterranean and also there were ways in which it just takes one or two of the elite to convert and then dictate. And then, boom, it's a religion. So uh, how does this happen today? Okay, so it's hap I believe it's happening now. Um, I believe that we're at the point where, you know, so let's put it this way. I use this because the X-Files was an, a wonderful, very sophisticated way of doing this. They, they use these, these memes now, right? That we didn't call them memes in the 90s when the X-Files was going. But, you know, I want to believe. Okay, so what does it mean? I want to believe. It means that you don't necessarily believe, or that you know maybe someday you'll believe, but you're not believing now, right? So what you're doing is you're deferring belief. You believe that it's going to happen at some point, so you're not actually. We're let's just call you and I, and most people who don't believe in UFOs. Let's call them people who don't believe in them. Yet we want to believe because how cool that would be. Well, I don't actually think that would be cool, but let's just say that it's a cool thing. Yeah, I want to believe, okay? And also, the truth is out there. So we don't know the truth now, but the truth could possibly be revealed at some point. So this makes this an, a form of religion that has some type of realistic bite that it has been lost with the traditional religions because nobody believes in miracles anymore. Nobody, you know, not when I say nobody, I'm talking about like mainstream ideas are such that no one walks on water today, that kind of thing. Nobody, there's no virgin birth today. Okay. So what I'm saying is that this new form of religiosity, this new form of religion actually does have this realism like um, baked into it. And so, yes, it's going to take off. And yes, I think it's going to, at some point, just become like Christianity and just kind of like, boom. You know, it's a religion that you can believe in and keep your own religion. How do you define religion here? Because I think somebody hearing this, particularly of a more atheistic or, or skeptic uh, 
frame of mind will hear religion and think what you mean is something false, like a like a like a belief system that isn't true. But I, I my sense is that's not how you're using it. So, what does religion mean here to you? To just define the term. Great question. So this is a question that I always hope somebody will ask. I always forget to say what I mean by religion. And this is the first thing I talked about in all of my classes, what is religion? And so religion basically is a concept that started in the West, okay? Because it's really a way of looking at the world that is explanatory. Like some people say, well, science is a religion because we don't, we don't actually know what gravity is. You know, things like that. There is no proof of what it is. We don't, we don't even know what it is. It's kind of like God, right? Okay, so my point is this, is that when Westerners think of religion, they think of the monotheistic religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But those are not the, the only religions. And other religions have cosmologies or belief systems in which there is no God, okay? So religion, like let's take Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism is a practice. It's not even, you know, you don't even need to believe. You just need to practice. Uh, there are certain forms of Judaism in which, you know, people just, if you do the work, if you do the good works, you know, you're a Jew. You, you know, you, well, not, you're a Jew if you're in the culture. You're, you practice. But you don't necessarily have to believe anything. Belief came about in about 1700, you know, whether or not you believe. And it's still a, a, a tension between different denominations of Christians. Protestants believe, you know, you have to believe this. Catholics are like, if you do the work, you're a Catholic, you, you'll go to heaven kind of thing. It doesn't necessarily, you know, because beliefs could be wrong. And so, um, so religion is a complicated idea. So my definition of religion is belief in an ultimate transformative reality that determines your actions, your practices, in daily life and your beliefs. When you say that about Catholics, that, that was surprising to me. You talk in the book about the difference between, say, public and private miracles in the church, where in public miracles, I think that was the terminology, are miracles everybody has to believe in, private miracles you can choose to believe in. Is, is it the case that you can be Catholic and not believe in the core tenets of the faith? Okay, so this is a, a Catholic kind of question. And this is, <laughs> yeah, okay. That Most people don't know this. Catholics included, there are people who are have mystical experiences. Let's take the Virgin Mary apparitions in various places like uh, Yugoslavia, okay? A lot of Catholics believe in that. And the church has not yet decreed whether or not it, you know, it's belief worthy or not, okay? So they do say, they will come down and say, you know, um, Fatima, this is a Virgin Mary apparition in the early 20th century. And they say, it looks to be supernatural and we endorse it. You can have doubts, like Mother Teresa is a good example. Um, you know, her diaries were found and she was a practicing Catholic, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Her, her faith was, I thought this was fascinating. Her faith was questioned because she questioned God. She questioned the belief in God. And that's something that you can do in Catholicism. And you are, quote unquote, required to believe in certain things, but it, that doesn't mean you can't struggle to believe because no, because Catholics generally know that you can't make yourself believe. I can't make myself believe I'm five, eight, right? I'm five, four. 
I can't make myself believe I am. Therefore, if it goes against my reason, you bring that to your confession, you know, and you talk about it. And that's how they work it out in the Catholic faith. Now, there's private, it's called private revelation and public revelation. Public revelation is Jesus walked on water and he had a virgin birth. Those things are set. You be, you're obligated to believe in them. There's a purgatory. You're, you, whether or not it's, it's physical or, or material or non-material, doesn't matter. You believe in it. These are, ob, these are dogmas and they're, you're obligated to believe in them. Now, whether or not you struggle to believe in them is another story. I hope that makes sense. That, that does. So uh, now I want to go, um, into a little bit of the story of your book, which is you start this and you, your, your intention is to study the world of people who are looking at UFOs through the lens of religious studies. It's a scholarly effort. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's fact-checked, the whole thing. But the book also ends up being something of a first-person travelogue as you see some things you can't explain, you meet people you didn't expect to meet, and you find both yourself and them somewhat changed. Can you talk a bit about your own journey on this? Absolutely. So this was a struggle. First, as an academic, you love it when your research surprises you. Like I, you know, it's like, wow, really? That's what, <laughs> that's what was going on? Like when I talk about purgatory in my first book, I didn't expect to find that at all. And so as I went into the second book, I thought, this is going to be an easy book to write because it's very, it lends itself so well to religion because we can't prove that these things exist yet so many people believe in them. So this will be easy. Well, it wasn't easy because what happened was I first met normal people who experienced UFOs, seen UFOs, believed they were in touch with UFOs, and some of them lived near me. So I was able to talk to them, interview them, you know, and this is the South. So there's kind of a hospitality here. So we'd eat together, you know, our kids would play together and things like that. So I would really get an insight into how this affected them. Okay. And so what I found though, was that a lot of scientists and people affiliated with three letter agencies for want of a better term, and the government were also interested in them. And that surprised me at first. I thought, what? You know, why are they interested? You know, this is something that doesn't exist. Remember, I'm an atheist about UFOs, so I don't actually believe. You know, of course they couldn't believe. And actually they did believe. And in fact, some of them had experiences. Some of them believed they had crashed parts, things like that. In fact, the first chapter opens with me taking a friend of mine who is an academic um, and a very well-known scientist with me to a place in New Mexico that's supposedly a UFO crash site. It's not Roswell. And we're taken there by this incredibly enigmatic man <laughs> named Tyler. I call him Tyler after Tyler Durden because in a sense, he doesn't exist. You know, I don't, I don't want to spoil Fight Club, that movie for anyone, but... Um, it's a great boy. This man, to be clear, does exist. He absolutely exists. And he has absolutely changed the course of our American history. He's done amazing things for, for the United States, but he's not known and he'll never be known for those things. And so I thought this was incredible being a historian. And so he was the first person I said, this guy's going in the book if he allows himself to go in the book. And can, can you just describe him a little bit more? I mean, you say he's done amazing things in a changing course of history. <laughs> yeah. my, my sense of him reading the book was that he's a 
biotech entrepreneur or something like that, which is a more normal. Like, what what are, what are we dealing with here? Who who I know you can't say his name, but who is this guy? Okay, so I call him Tyler D. And I, I meet him, and since he was about eighteen, and now he's you know a retirement age, he's worked for NASA, and then he was um, worked for various different programs within the space agencies. Okay, because there aren't just there's not just NASA; there are different space agencies, and so he worked within these different capacities. On the side, he took what he learned from doing space research, and he created biotech companies. One of which he sold for an undisclosed amount of money, but I think it was like $100 million on NASDAQ. And so he he accumulated millions of dollars working in this type of capacity, like learning about these parts. And I didn't understand how there were these two things because I didn't understand how biotech could actually be linked to space industry. But what I found out as I got further and further into the research was that they're intimately connected. So a lot of things that are found through space research are actually applicable to biotechnologies. And he happened to be this person who has a very, and I found this out about a lot of the people who I, I started to study who were, let's call them completely normal people, like the guy next door, but he has this job and you think he goes, you know, goes there every day or whatever. Tyler, Tyler didn't actually, he, he, uh, he could work anywhere. And you think they do this one thing, but that job is not what they really do. Okay, and so, but that wasn't the case with James, the uh, academic who I took to the desert with me. James was an actual academic, completely well known, and you know one of the top academics in the world. And he was an experiencer and a believer as well. So this was one of the things that caused, I would call it, uh, John Mack, who who um, won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way, and worked at Harvard in the eighties, and I think he. I think he died like six years ago or so. A brilliant man, and um, he did uh, he did a great. This is a good book too, by the way. Uh, John Mack's book called um, Abduction, and he he was a research psychiatrist at Harvard. So he called it the epistemological shock of recognizing that there's something here that you didn't know. And now you're open to the possibility that there's something beyond human, you know, our intelligence, whether or not it's human intelligence that comes from another part of our brains that we're not aware of, or whether or not it's it's non-human intelligence. All of a sudden, that happened in my journey when I met and studied with, became friends with these people. There's, uh, I don't, I can't talk to Tyler anymore. But I do talk to James. James is now one of my best friends. And so I developed a, a group of people who studied this. And yeah, I became, um, I don't know, like, I'm, and, you know, people say, what is it? What is it? I don't know. But I can tell you that there's something here that's very strange. And, um, and yeah, I became shocked and further compelled to explore. So two, th- two things, just one thing to come at you there. Why can't you talk to Tyler anymore? Okay, so Tyler has a job that requires a lot of secrecy. You know, he can't, um, there are things that he does that, you know, that people have clearances for a reason. He's got some clearances. And so after the book was done and it became, actually, I honestly thought 
hardly anybody would read the book. <laughs> I was like, nobody's going to understand this book. Nobody's going to read it, but I'm writing it anyway. And so I wrote it and then boom, it took off. And then Tyler and I thought it was best not to associate. And so the other piece of this is to, to just finish out part of your story here. Tyler takes you and James to this place in the New Mexico desert. James is a scientist who has a laboratory that works on applied materials. You guys find some kind of alloy that the idea is that James has the capacity to actually see, can we explain what this alloy is? And when he looks at it, he cannot. And just for people to know, this is something that is mentioned also in these New York Times stories, that these alloys are being studied, that they're being found, that there's confusion over what they are. And so like this this is the part of the book that isn't somebody telling you something, but 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 you seeing something and there being at least some level of scientific verification that whatever you're seeing is whatever it is, which is weird. Yes. I mean, I'm not coming out and saying that it's ET material or anything like that. I don't know. All I know is that these very credentialed people have used the best equipment they, you know, in the world to look at these things. And it's a conundrum to them. They don't even know what they are. They said, you know, I, I even quote James as saying, this, you know, which is pretty unbelievable. This couldn't even be made in our universe. Like this, this is how strange it is. We really don't know what this is. So yes, so that is exactly the case. And they call them metamaterials, by the way. One of the things that I think the book is really interesting on and that I want to pull out here for people who, whatever side of this they're on, they're starting to get a little uncomfortable. Even I, right? Listen, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, this is weird. I didn't see the thing. One of the things a book gets at is that there are two sides of this debate that are both trying to impose a high level of certainty on an uncertain phenomena. I think that the, the Navy releasing um, these videos, the you know being able to listen to what the pilots are seeing, being able to read some of the stories on on, on what has been found. There's clearly something weird here. I don't. I have no idea what it is. But there's, on the one hand, an effort to say this is absurd, even talking about this is absurd and we shouldn't. And then on the other hand, an effort to say we know what this is, it is extraterrestrial life forms. And you actually talk about the sort of UFO media complex that will take very uncertain experiences and impose a level of certainty on them. And what was striking to me about some of the people you followed and, and the path you followed in the book is the difficulty of holding on to an open skepticism, the difficulty of holding on to an actual uncertainty in the midst of people from all directions trying to impose an interpretive framework on, on, on what you're already seeing. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that tension. Yes, absolutely. Um, and here I think this um, pretty old book that I think almost everybody's probably read was the Thomas Kuhn book about the structure of scientific revolutions. The idea that everybody has read Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolutions suggests you have an unusual community. <laughs> so, you know, it's see, and this is where I see the work of James as being incredibly relevant here. It's that we, we bust our brains trying to figure this out, right? We're trying to figure out what this is. It's it's absurd. It's something that doesn't fit. Therefore, we reject it. But the absurdity continues to the point that some of the people who are making the claims are beginning to actually have 
what I would say explanatory frameworks that makes make some sense. And those then come in and they're less threatening. And then slowly, the, you know, things change. So this would be one of those strange explanatory frameworks. So this is what I also saw, by the way, with the shift in purgatory being kind of not material, not um, spiritual, but somehow both. And all of a sudden, after the enlightenment, it has to be totally spiritual. It can't be an actual place, okay? So the enlightenment brought about this idea that there's spirit and matter. There are two things and they, they can't meet, right? Kind of thing. Well, here we have another thing that we look at that doesn't seem to be matter or or non-matter we don't you know it's it's con, it's confounding okay so my my um what i did was i parsed out different communities within the community called ufology uh, people who study ufos and i found that there were the nuts and bolts crowd who believed that these were extraterrestrial crafts they functioned just like you know things that we would make kind of aircraft like we would make and then there was the mystical crowd that believed that these things were completely entirely non-material. They could be material if they wanted, but they didn't have to be. And you know, we can communicate them telepathically with our minds, right? Okay, so this kind of thing too. So these were two very different opposing almost, in fact, they are opposing groups. Now, the question is, the people that maintained a level of healthy skepticism with respect to this. And that would be James. And that would be Tyler. Like, you know, Tyler believes, but he he doesn't know. Is that possible to believe but not know? I think it is. And I think that he is the person who best describes that because he's looking and James is looking, right? Now, even in quantum physics, apparently the observer has something to do with the material reality that they're looking at. So perhaps here we're ha we have some kind of, you know, even Carl Jung said something like this, you know, he's, he's one of the first kind of minds in our culture to grapple with this, you know, on some type of level that didn't make him look ridiculous or anything. So perhaps these are things that, you know, that transcend our belief that they have to be nuts and bolts, maybe they, maybe we interact with them somehow. I don't know, you know, but again, I'm completely agnostic. I am not an atheist with respect, but I'm definitely not a believer. I'm not a theist. <laughs>
So I'll, I'll give an example. Um, after the Navy UFO stuff came out, my colleague Sean Illing, who you've also spoken to in the past, did an interview with a guy named Alexander uh, Went or Vent, maybe, who's a oh yes, I know who's who a he is. he's yeah. a leading IR scholar for people who don't know who he is. One of the most famous political scientists in the world, but who also believes UFO phenomena deserve a lot more investigation. He's willing to make that argument. He thinks about what it might mean for society if something happens, such that we realize there were extraterrestrial intelligence out there. Anyway, so we put out this interview, and basically the only thing the interview says is, "I don't know what this is." But we should be researching this. And too many scientists are afraid of the ridicule that would come along with doing that. And then after we put that out, I got an email um, from two scientists I really respect and, and, and one of them I know quite well, who were – it was exactly what Wendt had described. Um, they, they were asking like why we were trafficking in such ridiculous theories, like why give this any attention at all? Um, and it's like very much the same cultural resistance, the mockery and dismissal to studying this stuff, even though it seems interesting and as worthy of study as a hundred other topics that get research funding. And so what that made me interested in is the way dismissal and mockery operate in a different level than skepticism. They sort of, they cloak themselves as skepticism, but they're not. They're a, um, they're like a way of shutting off inquiry as opposed to like disproving something in reality. Yes. Well, I don't want to make you more uncomfortable, Ezra. Please, no, I'm, 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 <laughs> you I'm, here, to, I'm here to be uncomfortable. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in this together. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, one of the things that I did find, and my answer to Dr. Wendt, who's who's brilliant, wonderful, he's got a TEDx talk out there called Why Not Take This More Seriously. Um, I've been to his university to give a talk, and um, this is what I would say. And I know that a lot of people don't like this. I don't like it, but it's it's actually true, is that there are a lot of scientists studying this. There are a lot of very, very top well-known scientists studying this. We just don't know that they are. Jacques Vallée called it the invisible college. I call it the UFO fight club because they are so, they're in a, they're sometimes they're working right next to somebody who does one thing and they don't know what they do, right? And so that actually exists. I've met too many people now who are in that and it's the case. So it's, it is being done. And just that it can't, it's not being done at a research university and funded by the general funding agency. The Templeton might fund it. <laughs> that would be, you know, good. But no, it's, I mean, it actually probably the taxpayers are funding it is what I'm thinking. So yes, they, they these programs do exist. Top uh, professors and researchers are studying it. But they're not able to do it in the way you would normally study something, which is to say that data is no. not going out into uh, a place where it can be perused. It's not being built upon in a normal way. I mean, you, you talk about this, the, the Jacques Vallée idea of it being the invisible college, but I'm interested in why it is pushed into invisibility. Look, you were, you were just bringing up quantum mechanics a minute ago, and, and I recently had on the show Sean Carroll, who is a Caltech theoretical physicist, and he's a believer in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is if you take the mathematics of it seriously, one of the simple ways to resolve the observer problem is to believe that there is no observer 
problem, that what's happening is reality is branching into many different realities constantly in which all these probabilities uh, um, express or all these outcomes um, or superpositions express themselves. And we can't prove that. We can't really disprove that for all kinds of reasons, but it's an interesting thing. People study it. They debate it. And what's striking to me about this and what is interesting to me because it affects other things too. It affects political ideas. It affects, um, I'm a, I'm a vegan. I think it affects that set of ideas is the immune system by which some things are attacked as being unworthy of discussion while other things are, are, are let in. Now, sometimes I think there are good reasons we keep things um, outside of the boundaries of conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm like not a big believer that we should just endlessly debate whether or not Jews are an inferior race, um, which used to be a totally legitimate thing people did all the time in polite society. Um, but there are other things that are just being mocked for 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 more unclear reasons. And so I'm curious from, from the religious scholar perspective, why you think UFO research and discussion has ended up being so disreputable that people feel they have to do it in secrecy? Okay, this is a great question. And it's a it's an it's a question that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So just a trigger warning. <laughs> so um, I have a couple answers to your question. Okay. The first answer is that we've been trained by media to see UFOs as these disc-like objects that have like little green men in them, right? And that in and of itself is ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> if there are alien, if there are truly alien intelligences beyond what we know, I, I promise you that's not what they're going to be like. They're going to be so alien that they're probably here. We don't even recognize them. That's my opinion. Okay. It doesn't reflect Oxford. It doesn't reflect my university. And it sounds far flung, but that's the situation. That's what I think. Um, however, why is there this scientific resistance to studying something that is obviously out there? Like pilots are told, I don't know if you knew this, but pilots were routinely told not to talk about UFOs when they saw them. So why is this? And I think physicist Eric Davis actually has a great, and I quote him in my book, has a great answer to this. He said, things flying about in airspace that's, you know, our airspace and sometimes airspace that you're not supposed to be flying around in is not a matter for scientists, you know, say at some research university. It's a it's a military matter. It's a matter for our military. And so I think that that has something to do with it. You know, if there's a potential threat, I think that and by the way, Stephen Hawking said something to the effect of he said a lot of things about UFOs that most people don't know. But one of the things he did say is why are we signaling, you know, like SETI for them to know we're here? Because the, the process of cultures clashing has never been good for one of the, the less advanced culture, right? It's always, it's been a, you know, history has been a history of war and destruction and colonialism, right? So do we want that? So that's my question too. So he's right. I'm, I think that because on one level, if it is true, heck, I don't, you know, that, that, then we have a whole, that's Pandora's box there opening. That doesn't quite the the first piece what the physicist said, not what Hawking said, which I think is interesting. Um, doesn't quite track for me in two ways. So one, we know from these New York Times stories, there was a funded program at the Pentagon, funded by among others uh, Senator Harry Reid, Daniel Inouye, and Ted Stevens. Yes. Um, 
that then got closed down. Looks like some people may still be doing some of that work, but it, but it got defunded with the Pentagon saying, you know, like we we don't feel like there's enough reason to keep going on this. But the people who were running it are angry about that. They feel there was enough reason to keep going with it. They feel a lot wasn't explained. And, and then secondarily, what just strikes me is not that compelling about, about that argument of the science-military distinction is that for reasons that lead to a lot of criticism or a history that leads to a lot of criticism, the military and American science are deeply interwoven with each other, with all kinds of things that are understood to be national security threats being a primary thing that science ends up studying because there is so much federal funding to do that kind of work. Um, so much technological research goes into creating weaponry, but also, I mean, IR research is constantly about things that threaten us. Political science research is about conflict. Um, and, you know, there are military colleges. So this idea that the military, if it was actually worried about this at high levels, wouldn't want it being studied, that doesn't seem like how they react to a lot of other things that we are worried about at high levels. And I would have to push back on that. So this is how I'd push back. There are clearances, right? People have the various uh, levels of clearances, right? And uh, everybody makes a joke when the president finally gets the clearance, you know, his face changes, you know, he gets really serious. Okay. So um, people have clearances. Not, not this president. <laughs> no. He, in fact, I was fascinated that he did not do the, um, the briefing. Now that you got to think about that, that's fascinating um, for various reasons, but we don't have to go into that. However, think about this: Why are there clearances, Ezra? So I agree with you that the military and scientists are. I know many scientists who are part of military programs. Okay, and they have clearances. They have special types of clearances, and there are different types of clearances. There's levels of them. There's confidential, you know, and then there's you know need to know kind of stuff. So the question is, why do those exist? Well, they exist because some things are kept secret. So the fact that these things are kept secret, that's the question that you should be asking. I think that's fair. I do think one of the weird things about this that always pings on my um, uh, attention on this is that there do seem to be a lot of senior government officials who keep suggesting there is stuff they'd want to declassify. And I, I don't want to be conspiratorial about this. And, and I want to be very clear in this that I actually just don't have a dog in this fight. It just seems to me like something we would want to know more about and have more discussion about. But Clinton's former campaign chief, John Podesta, was very interested in this and wanted to see a lot of it declassified. Harry Reid has pushed on it. Um, there is something a little weird here where either it's just people being interested in it who want to see more discussion or people at very senior levels of the government who think that there is stuff that should be out there to be discussed. And it's very unclear which one of those things is happening. But it's enough people with high enough level clearances who say they want to push things out, but it is not actually in their power to do so. That I don't know. This is, I think, this is why I want to have this conversation. I'm not really, I think, on the merits a believer that there are alien crafts buzzing around the earth. But I am on the merits a believer that Given the level of interest, given the consistency of reports in different cultures and at different times over long periods of time, and given how profound it would be if something was there, no matter what kind of weird thing it was, the amount of energy dedicated to making this a ridiculous topic of conversation strikes me as in many ways the absolute most suspicious thing about it. Yes, I totally agree. So. 
one of the first things I did when I began this research was I went and I looked at the records of the space, the beginnings of our space program, right? Our space program and the Russian space programs, the ones that are pretty viable, okay, where we put people up in space and keep them up there. All right. Now, what I found was when I went to their library, well, two things I'll say. The first thing I found was that there is a great history of our space program that's kept at the Air Force Library. And I think a lot of it is digital. So if you type, if you Google Air Force Library, um, and it's in Los Angeles. Um, and thankfully, they had really honest historians. He basically said, but we can't share this with you because it's classified still. Okay. So they were very honest about it. They were very transparent. This is classified. You can't look at it. And so I told Blumenthal and Kane, and they said, are you sure? And I said, go and check it out for yourself. I, I think I even sent them an email with the link, like go look at it yourself. And so, you know, it's out, it's, it's out there. So there's classified stuff. Uh, there's classified stuff for corporate you know, proprietary technologies. You know, the United States is is has that too, you know, for technologies and things like that. This could be military stuff, Ezra, right? So I've thought, I mean, I thought maybe I could put that in my book or write that. And that would, I don't, I didn't feel safe doing that. I mean, I didn't feel safe as in I was going to be murdered. I just didn't feel comfortable as a scholar writing about that. I felt much more comfortable as a scholar of religion writing about this as a religion. Yeah, I mean that makes that makes it. So let's talk about it a bit as a religion, um, because there's a lot of you have a lot of concepts and ideas in there that I think are just wonderfully useful for for everyday life. But one of the ones that I loved is this idea of a book encounter. Yes. Could you talk about what a book encounter is? So the book encounter is something that's been talked about by many many people. Even Constantine talked about it, uh, having a book encounter and converting to. Um, I'm sorry, Augustine, to Christianity. Well, he was already a Christian, but this is when he had his true conversion. He had a book encounter. And so throughout our history, we have people, um, Kessler, uh, what's his first name? I can't remember. He's a great scholar, but he also wrote about what he called the library angel. Okay. And today we can have music encounters. We can have, you know, digital encounters, you know, with even ads, you know, uh, that pop up when, and so we have, we are interested in something. Let's, let's call it anything, right? So we're interested in something and all of a sudden what is in our mind appears in something like a book and it explains what it is. Okay. And then it's so uncanny. It's a synchronicity, basically. The synchronicity is so uncanny that we're sold on whatever that interpretation is. Okay. So I had a, a book encounter with the gay science Nietzsche's, Frederick Nietzsche's book, which by the way, I just love Frederick Nietzsche. I used to hate him, but I, I, you know, after that book encounter, he became an incredible philosopher to me. And so, um, and I, I, my book encounter happened on New Year's Eve. I hated Nietzsche. Everybody told me I should read him, but I couldn't stay. I couldn't get through the misogyny and the racism and stuff like that, you know? And so I picked it up and I looked through it and I picked it up directly to the page that had to do with New Year's Eve. And I thought, well, that's odd. This is New Year's Eve. And it was just New Year's Eve. It had just, you know, passed 12. And so I read it and then and I thought, what a weird coincidence. And the next page was actually about coincidences. And Nietzsche basically suggested, when you have these coincidences and they seem so incredibly powerful, don't believe them, okay? 
So, but some people believe them, like new age spirituality filled with synchronicities lead you on your path kind of thing. There's been no religion that I have, that I've studied where practitioners have not used the coincidence or the book encounter or the synchronicity as a way to uh, basically support and, you know, make credible their faith that this kind of thing was, oh, it has to be true because this happened. See? But but one of the things I thought was interesting about the book encounter idea, so one of the ways you describe it, which, which I've had many, many times, is there is an experience you have had over years that has been in some way important to you or inexplicable to you, and then somehow you read a book that tells you that is what the experience was. And in, in, in my case, I'll use a very banal example. There is a certain, I've actually described it on the show before. There is a certain way I can, uh, a certain like mind state I can achieve, usually reading on planes where, where I have nothing to distract me and nothing else to do. I get into like what almost feels like a meditative or fugue state and I become much more associational. I'm able to read a lot more, like make more interesting connections. And I actually just recently read this book by Nick Carr called The Shallows. And he calls this deep reading. And there's actually a whole literature on it and when it happens and how it happens. And for me, that was actually really helpful and helped me. Like it's a state I really like. So I'm trying to think. So I'm now I'm looking at a lot of this literature to, to find it more. But in 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 your book, um, this is something that a lot of people in the UFO world end up having. They've had something happening to them or had happened to them or to somebody they know possibly for a very long time before they have the book encounter. And then the book encounter explains what it is, but it explains only what it might be. But because nobody else has given them an explanation, that explanation is incredibly convincing. And that just struck me as a really interesting idea that like, when we're so desperate to have something explained, the first time somebody recognizes it, it's going to be very persuasive to us. It is. And it is. a. It is. It's, so that finally, you figured it out. Somebody told you they had the exact experience and you said, that's it. It must be real, right? It must be true. And it must be that. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, I, you know, I agree. So what you're describing, by the way, is a tradition in the Western uh, Jewish and Christian. It's called Lectio Divina and it's deep reading. So that's been around for a while. It used to be something practiced. Oh, that yeah, that no, I definitely did not discover this. This is me. Uh, this is me just being late, late to the party oh, on no, it. No, I'm not saying you discovered it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying that if you're interested in learning more about it, there's a lot written about it. It's real. I'm fascinated by it myself. Yeah, I would love citations on, I read on books that. that. There, you know, when you encounter a book and that book becomes a part of you, there's something going on there that's not a normal reading of information. I call it the book encounter. <laughs> Let me go back to this with with the UFOs because one of the most one of the wonderful threads that I think should give us all a lot of skepticism about ourselves running through the book is actually the connection of how people would interpret these phenomena when their interpretory structure was religious versus how they interpret it when their interpretory structure is technological. And I want to put a pin in the idea of technology as an interpretory structure to come back to. But but the idea that the same things are getting seen in very different ways, just depending on what culture you're in at what time is interesting. So you have all this evidence from Catholicism. Um, maybe as a way of grounding this, do you want to talk about the Lady Fatima oh, and sure. what people saw and how they understood it? Because I think it's a very striking example because you can imagine the same thing today being seen very differently. Yes. So this is fascinating. In Fatima, this is around, you know, uh, 1916, 1917. And there are, this is in Portugal. 
and this, the the official story of Fatima looks quite different, by the way, than the actual primary source material of Fatima. So the good thing about being, you know, somebody who knows that and goes in and has access to those sources and reads them is that you get the story, right? Kind of the unvarnished story and you get to see how it was spun, okay? Or as my friend Jeff Kripal says, how it gets cooked, right? <laughs> and so um, what happened was that these three kids, first of all, see something that looks like a uh, kind of like a silverish cloud uh, come down and there's a youth in it, a, a, like a, a young man. And he basically tells them, he, they think he's an angel and he tells them you're going to there's a lady and she's going to talk to you you have to come back here and at this time and she'll be here so of course they ran home they were afraid they did because they were terrified they prayed and they did exactly what he said because they were terrified not to and so they went back and um, the lady came and so she never said she was the virgin mary um and so they didn't actually know who she was but they had their framework of Catholicism, but even that didn't, you know, they weren't, they never said that at the time. So then what happened was that the, the people of uh, the town, uh, this got around. And so a lot of people started to come when the lady would show up and a lot of them would hear things like buzzing sounds or, you know, there would be uh, what the Catholic church would call supernatural events that would happen. And so um, after months of this, uh, the lady said she was going to provide uh, proof, right? And it was going to convince many people. And so um, a lot of people showed up. I can't remember the exact amount. And there was newspaper articles about it. I mean, you could look it up. There were thousands and thousands of people there. Let's put it that way. And each of them, some of them saw the same thing. Some of them saw different things, but they all saw something. And there were atheists there. And I quote, one of the atheists who then, he went there as an atheist and he was a doctor. And so he saw a spinning, the sun spinning around and then falling to the earth. Everybody screamed. Uh, there was rain and then everybody was dry. <laughs> so, I mean, there was truly people from other towns far away saw some type of um, something in the sky that appeared to be a comet. Okay. So, the Catholic Church took a couple of years to to find out, you know, do examinations and, um, you know, what they do actually there. Believe me, if the Catholic Church has de deemed something supernatural, they've done their work because they the devil's advocate actually comes from the Catholic Church. That that idea of, um, you know, putting something to the skeptical test. So they they deemed this definitely supernatural and. Uh, many people believe that this was the Virgin Mary, but that was something that it morphed into afterwards. So I, I don't want to, you know, make my, all my Catholic friends not like me for saying this, but you know, if you, re I don't know who, what it was. Okay. Let's put it that way. So you go to the, the sources and you read them and they look very different than how they're interpreted through time by the public. How would it be interpreted today? I mean, still a lot of things are seen differently when people see what they would call quote unquote UFOs, sometimes they see different things, but they see something. Yeah. I mean, you, you have some fascinating stories in the book where the same people in a family are seeing something very different, yes. interpreting it very differently. <laughs> yes. And I just find, I just find that whole thing fascinating. I mean, that same event, um, the, the Fatima event could be 
and probably would be interpreted very differently if seen today at that scale um, or if people believe they saw it at that scale. And this way in which we see the reality that we've been conditioned to see, that we have interpretive frameworks that make sense of things, I mean, it could have nothing to do with any of the things we're thinking about now. Uh, one of my, I have very few beliefs I would frame as actually spiritual, but like my one deep one is that whatever the truth about things is, is just way weirder and less um, amenable to our interpretive frameworks than we like to think it will be. Like I just like anything that is too similar to things humanity already knows, I am intensely skeptical of um, as a as a nature, as a description of ultimate reality. Um, I think that's right. I like that. I like it's just going to be weird. We're 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 barely yeah. above monkeys. We are barely above <laughs> yeah. monkeys, and the idea that we're going to figure it all out is just an amazing amount of, right. hub of hubris, or that we know, or that we yeah, know exactly. I but so that's a that's a powerful thing. And so one of the, th the threads you're tracking in your book is the way technology has become, all, in some cases, a religious like interpretive framework, um, and how. UFOs are a very good kind, they're very fitting sort of religious belief for a world in which technology is the interpretive framework. And, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about that in its sort of larger sense, not in the way we just see UFOs, but in the way you think it is changing what will count as a religion um, and spiritual belief in the coming years. Absolutely. So this is something that, again, I have a po politically incorrect uh philosopher Heidegger, who did actually talk about this in several of his books. Um, one, not books, actually wrote a lot of essays um, and books, but his essays are more accessible, but he's still difficult to read. Uh, and this is called What is Technology? And basically what he says is he says that um, for the Greeks, you know, you had the gods in the temple, and the temple is where the gods existed, right? There was, that framed everything for them. Okay. And then you go to Catholicism and you have the cathedral and you have God in the cathedral, in the physical structures, even in the incense, in the experience of it. It's a material experience. It's a physical presence of God. And that determines everything. That determines the society, right? Okay. So then we move into science. Okay. And he says, basically what's going to happen is that technology is going to supplant all of those things in the past and it's our it's he doesn't even know now he, he's writing in the 30s and the 40s before we have the internet but he basically says that technology was going to frame the ways in which we interpret reality so you have you know you also have Immanuel Kant you actually sound like a Kantian right where you basically say there is this phenomena out there but we can never know it because we just how could we know it with our very, you know, we're we're not like super excellent instruments of interpretation, our bodies, you know, everything. So that's Kant, that's Immanuel Kant. So then you get Heidegger who takes Immanuel Kant and he basically puts him in this framework of the future that, you know, technology is now going to determine what we see. And I'll give you an example that's kind of like a much more easy example to understand. So I have students, they go to study abroad, okay, and they have grandparents. And a lot of times their grandparents are Christian. I mean, yeah, they're Christian. I mean, I'm in the South. So um, they go to um, the Vatican, okay, for study abroad. And they see Francis of Assisi, and Francis of Assisi is, is getting what's called the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. But what the students see is in the sky, a giant UFO that's, that's zapping 
Francis with laser beams, right? And then what their grandparents see is what they learned that, you know, he's, this is an angel and it's the, then Francis is getting the, um, the wounds of Christ. Okay. So there's a completely different interpretation of something that they are looking at, which by the way, is an interpretation. So if you look at the, at the picture and then you go and you look at the actual text of it by brother Leo, he wasn't alone. He had his friend, brother Leo with him, brother Leo witnessed the whole thing. And it looks nothing like what brother Leo says. What does brother Leo say? It looks like he basically says that, uh, it's <laughs> the coincidences here are so strange too. It's the feast of the archangels. Okay. And so they're on a hill and they're praying to the archangels. And then brother Leo is kind of far away, a little, maybe like, I don't know, 20, 30 feet away from Francis. And he sees this thing burst into the sky with all kinds of lights around it. And it's like a disc and it falls down. And then you see an eye come out of the disc. And then you see light shining at Francis and Francis is completely immobilized. And then um, he gets these wounds. And um, he actually, in the end, dies of these wounds. Okay, these wounds are, are bad. They're like, um, you know, people sometimes report after UFO events, this will freak you out, radiation burns. Okay, so it looks like he's, you know, he, so this is what brother, he doesn't use that language, but he basically says, this is what happens. And there's some type of telepathy that happens between Francis and the thing in the sky. Like they have some kind of communication, but we don't know what that is. And that cannot be conveyed in the pictures. And if you Google Francis of Assisi stigmata, you'll see that none of the, you know, none of what Brother Leo says looks like the pictures. Because, you know, if you're an artist, how are you going to represent that? So that's, so that's a simple example. So my kids, they take pictures of it. My, oh, I call them kids. They're my students. They take pictures of these things. They send them back and they say, Dr. Fisulka, is this an, an alien or is this a UFO? And I say, well, uh, it's more complicated than that. And then, you know, their grandparents, I've, I've actually had phone calls from grandparents telling me, what are you teaching my children kind of thing? You know, or what are you teaching my, my grandchildren? And, um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's just, just different interpretive, interpretive, uh, structure that we live within that Heidegger predicted. What is the difference between believing in technology as technology and believing in technology as religion? Right. Okay. So, um, this is another point that Heidegger made. So I'm not taking any credit for this because this is, uh, Jung basically said we're, we're at the beginning of a new religion. Okay. So I don't take credit for that. Um, and also Heidegger basically said that our idea that technology is a tool, you know, that we use it is wrong. He said to think that this thing that we're interacting with and that actually forms us and we form it, there's this mutual engagement with uh, reciprocity with our technology. And think about it. Think about kids uh, that are so glued to their phones right today. And that's actually physiologically changing them. And there are lots of studies about that. I've read those too. Catherine Halis at Duke University is one of the first to kind of describe the physiological effects of technology on us. So we are changing even as, as physical human beings by technology. So I would say that the idea that technology is just something that we use is a facile understanding of technology. Now, how do we jump to technology as sacred and religious? I think that people think that technology is going to save us. 
you know, and it probably will, I think, you know, <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be great if we could get rid of the plastic in the ocean, right, with some kind of uh, benign bacteria that somebody came up with, right? Um, that would be great. So how will technology function for us? A lot of people think of it as kind of a savior. And again, when we see when we see things in the sky, a lot of times people think that, you know, it's a space brother, they have advanced technology, and they are going to come and save us. So there's kind of a salvific idea that's religious about technology. It's not this idea that technology is a tool. You know, it's a technology of, I mean, it's a, a belief system around the salvific nature of technology. There's something interesting that to me, I... Um... <laughs> before coronavirus, was involved in a reporting project on artificial intelligence. And I live out in the Bay Area. It's funny because some of the personalities you talk about in the book, who you frame is very unusual. I'm, I was like, no, I, I know like five people like that. Yes. Um, but, um, but I'm out in the Bay Area and I've spent a fair amount of time with people in the AI world. And what has been very striking about it to me from from, from this framework that you're offering is how much they understand that what they are trying to do is create a savior. Yes. How much they understand that what they're trying to do is create a being that is godlike comparatively or demigodlike at least in its capacities, in its intelligence, has the power to solve humanity's most difficult problems to create a future that is a salvific future. But they also recognize that in creating or summoning, if you want to use a different terminology, this godlike creature, they could summon something terrible. And so much of beyond the sort of like the, 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 the near AI research, right? There are people just working on the technical issues of how can like, how can the AI online stop telling me that since I just bought a bike, would I like to buy another bike, <laughs> right? There's like the, the right. real practical, like, how do we make this work? But then there are a lot of people who are thinking about what it's going to be like in 50 years and trying to bring that about. And you talk to them, and I mean, I don't imagine that the conversation with somebody trying to summon a what they what might be a demon, what might be an angel, is all that different. The question is like, can you summon the right one? Um, and there is something religious about it, even though it is based on a technological infrastructure. And by the way, if they succeed, which they might at some level or another, like it doesn't the fact that it has this these religious overtones doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Maybe it was preparing us here for th this idea is like a very straightforward idea, and maybe it's preparing us for a future we're actually going to have to inhabit. Yes, I totally agree. So, um, I, uh, Kurzweil's book, you know, um, Ray Kurzweil's big book that came out before he wrote the other ones, The Singularity. Yes, it is a book I often pretend to have read. Okay, so you need to go read that. And just read the first chapter. It is completely, uh, it has overtones of religion everywhere. In fact, I write about it in one of my, in a textbook. Um, I have a chapter about, uh, you know, the singularity as being, I mean, it's very religious in the sense that he feels it before he understands it intellectually. So he's got, he he has a mystical experience of this thing called the singularity. All right. So um, yeah, I totally agree with you that uh, that I've had I've met more scientists who are religious or or spiritual is what I would call them, but won't talk about it than you know, normal people, I guess you could call it. Um, and can I just say this too, that there are two mythologies that frame what you just described, okay? One is Prometheus, 
Okay. So, you know, the, the God, the Titan, the man, God coming down and helping humans understand technology and helping them. Right. And he gets, he actually gets punished for doing that, but we don't get punished. We benefit. Okay. But then there's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and that's bad. Okay. So we don't want to create a Frankenstein, but we do want a Prometheus. So there are two competing mythologies here. I, I like that. I like that as a place to, to, begin to bring it in for uh, a close. So I'm stealing a question here from my friend Tyler Cowan's blog, but but let me ask it of you. If you knew, like actually knew, that there would be confirmed contact with alien intelligence in the next 10 years, what would you do differently? Would you buy stocks, buy bonds, buy bottled water? Like what is what what is one action that knowledge of this would would make you take? Ooh, that's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that question before. Let me think about that. What action would I take if I knew for certain that we would have disclosed contact, like that the government would yeah. come out and say, yes, they exist and stuff? Um, because of my own ideas of what it could possibly be, I don't think I'd do anything differently. I think that I would go ahead and just live my life like like I'm doing now. I mean, we're, we're confronted with this coronavirus. The only thing I'm doing differently is staying at home. <laughs> you know, I'm doing everything else the same. So um, I think that I would be pretty happy with my research agenda. You know, <laughs> that <laughs> I made more grants. Yeah, I've made the right decision. Um, but no, I don't think I'd do anything differently. To tell you the truth, I'm sorry that that's like a boring answer. No, I, I think that's maybe a reasonable answer. I mean, I, I guess it does. Um, you said your own ideas about what it could be. Are you willing to share that? I am. But I mean, this is going to stretch everyone's idea of what aliens could possibly be. But I want to qualify this by saying that we've been taught what aliens are supposed to be. Um, because, you know, I looked through various polls done by different organizations about if there was an alien invasion, what would it most look like? And people say, oh, it's going to be like the X-Files, right? And I'm like, how would they even know, right? How do we know because we've been inundated with a, what aliens look like our whole lives, you know, with Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, all of the different Independence Day and things like that. Well, I think that if we're going to encounter something alien, it is going to be so alien that we barely recognize it. And I can give you an example. I've often thought that, you know, the book encounter and that frame of mind that you get into, I've often thought that if there is an alien presence, it's like, you know, the, uh, the great, the ancient Greeks used this idea of the muse, right? The muse, the M-U-S-E, mm -hmm. uh, this, this, you know, the muses, they were supposed to inspire. And what if those aren't metaphors? What if those are real? So what if there is something that can infuse human beings with stories that go viral, like contagious stories that then frame the way we live. That would be pretty interesting to learn. That would be. <laughs> um, it, it's funny. It reminds me of an idea that uh, came up in another podcast with John Higgs, um, which I think people enjoyed. This one would definitely enjoy about the idea space, that there is out there some kind of conceptual space that we have some relationship to, but it is not nearly as much under our control as we like to think. And it's funny how often you get into this. Um, you know, there's the the technology determinists, right, who believe that 
uh, technology is manipulating us in some way for its own ends. Uh, Marshall McLuhan had this line that we're simply the sex organs of technology. And I don't know that people believe that <laughs> it is that, like yeah. a <laughs> cognitively directed manipulation, but but that we are less in control than we think. Um, I like the idea that there are these different conceptual spaces that maybe we don't have full control over, whether or not it's a, another intelligence doing it. There does often seem to be something a little bit less autonomous than we like to imagine. That's true. And um I just want to say one last thing to that is that I did do some research on creativity and people who were in, um, immensely creative. Okay, so very creative. What was found was that they often felt that the ideas that they had came from external agents that they would, you know, and a lot of them actually believed it. So they they attributed the ideas that they had. Like John Nash, you know, the beautiful mind, uh, he believed in aliens. I don't know if you know that. And um, a lot of the people that I encountered, they they believed that they that they didn't, you know, and these people, some of these people were studied with um, EKGs and things like that and MRIs. And what they found was that when they were in a super creative state, a certain part of their brain would shut down so that it did appear to these people that there was an external agent, but it was them. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. I think I don't know is a good place to end. So let me ask you the question we always used to close the podcast, which is you've recommended a bunch of great books in this conversation. So if you want to um, repeat those recommendations, that is totally fine. But, but what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend? Okay. So I have, um, if people are interested in this particular topic, I have three great books for them. And the first one is um, by Jacques Vallée, who was, is an incredible person. Uh, worked on the proto internet, uh, lives in Silicon, well, lives in Silicon Valley, and um, it's called Passport to Magonia. And he wrote it in 1968. And he's the first person to have kind of gone through the historical record and looked at various uh, aerial phenomena. So that's a good one, Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée. Um, another book, which was a book encounter for me, was by my colleague Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University. And his book is called Author of the Impossible. And uh, it's, a, it's a, an incredibly beautiful book. Um, he has a chapter there on Jacques Vallée. Um, and then for people who are interested just in, you know, what the investigative journalists, uh, in, you know, what they have to say about the UFOs, Leslie Kane wrote a great book called Generals Go on the Record, UFOs. Um, and that's, that's just your basic kind of good, you know, this is what they've said. Uh, so those are the, the, the three books that I would have on this topic. And your book is American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, and Technology. Diana Walsh-Pisulka, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. It was fun. Thank you to Diana Walsh-Pisulka for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, you're welcome to give me your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, at EzraKleinShow@vox.com. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.